That's going to help. Okay, got it. Okay, so um, grab a Bible. If you don't have one, um, one of the... Ah, uh, oh, look, here he is. In fact, this kind gentleman is going to bring one to you. It's a service with a smile here, so don't feel ashamed to put a hand up. Perfect. You are definitely going to need one of these in your hands to um, navigate your way through this passage in Ephesians 3 with me here this morning. All right, so um, we're going to start in a slightly left field way. I'm hoping to show you that this um, is really connected into what we have coming, but it might not feel like it to start with. Um, How many of you have ever heard of a man called Siddhartha Gautama? All right, (laughs) but you were here in the first service, Rick, come on. (laughs) Siddhartha Gautama was born in the year 563 BC, the son of a prince uh, in the borderland between modern Nepal and India. Uh, Various myths surround his birth. Uh, One story has it that early in her pregnancy, his mum dreamed that she was circled by a white elephant seven times, uh, foretelling some great event. Uh, uh, Other stories tell us that uh, a bunch of Hindu holy men uh, arrived after Siddhartha was born and foretold that he would either be a great king if he stayed with his father or a great religious teacher if he went off on his own to search for the meaning of life. And hearing this, as you can imagine, his father decided to do everything within his power to keep Siddhartha uh, attached to the family home and to worldly things, uh, riches, parties, uh, palaces, the whole thing. Um, He married, aged 16, had at least one child. Um, But aged 30, uh, a series of encounters dramatically changed Siddhartha Gautama's life. While he was out riding one day, as princes are wont to do, um, in quick succession, he met uh, a young child full of energy, then an old man in terrible pain, uh, then a young, uh, uh, a young man who was very sick, and then finally a, a funeral procession. And seeing that whole passage from life to death pass in front of his eyes uh, all very rapidly suddenly made him question what in the world he was uh, doing himself, what was the meaning of his own life. So he decided to leave his palace and uh, to abandon his family and to set out on a quest for enlightenment. For the next six years, we're told that he wandered from place to place, meeting holy men, but none of them were able to provide him with the answers that he was looking for. He tried asceticism, tried solitude, tried even losing himself in alcohol. But one day, the story has it that he uh, fell into a a struggle with a supernatural being called Mara. And uh, Mara faced him with four temptations that barred the way to true understanding. The temptation to return uh, to his family and take care of them, probably what he should have been doing all along. Uh, The temptation to abandon himself to sexual indulgence. The temptation to avoid physical pain. And the temptation to give up on his journey because no one would be able to appreciate the depths of his insights. But anyway, through sheer willpower, we're told that Siddhartha overcame all of these. And the result was enlightenment. He gained deeper levels of consciousness, saw all of his past lives... And he came to the conviction that though suffering and frustration are inherent to human existence, that they can be escaped and that we can sidestep them through renunciation and meditation. We can free ourselves from all attachments and ultimately lose our individuality entirely. Siddhartha Gautama lived for another 40 years after that encounter, uh, teaching these new ideas across northern India until he died in 483 BC. Today, most of us know him as Buddha. Now, I wonder how that story strikes you and what you think of Buddha's quest and his ultimate vision of enlightenment. In one form or another, somewhere between 750 million and a billion people on the surface of the world at this moment believe that that story captures the essence of what is worth aiming for in life. And it has echoes in the secular worldview, doesn't it? Like Buddhism, our secular worldview is atheistic. It tells us that suffering and frustration and difficulty in life simply need to be escaped or avoided. The way that we're encouraged to do it is different. Instead of letting go of things, we're encouraged to get more and more things. We're encouraged to lose ourselves in therapy or in a fantasy world where all of our dreams will be fulfilled. But the effect is the same. We blind ourselves to our pain and to the pain of those around us. We don't pause to ask if they might actually be telling us something, 
Maybe even if someone might be telling us something through it all. Like Buddhism, the secular worldview is individualistic. It teaches us that we need to look out for number one and ignore other people if we have nothing to gain from them. Buddhism and the secular worldview also have elitism in common. Only the talented or the lucky or those who are able to apply superhuman effort ultimately arrive. But like Buddhism, according to the Bible, the secular worldview is mistaken, profoundly, radically mistaken. The Bible has a totally different take on what our lives are actually all about. And as Paul turns to prayer again at the end of the first half of Ephesians, we're going to see that alternative vision standing out loud and clear. So if you turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to stand together now out of uh, recognition of the fact that these are God's words to us. Um, And I'm going to read from Ephesians 3, starting at verse 14. Okay, here we go. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so take your seats and pray with me as we begin here. Lord God in heaven, we look to you. Um, We look to you to speak. We long that you would open up your words to us so that we might understand them. Thank you for shooting out these uh, examples of living the Christian life ahead of us. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you for the way that we can watch his life unfold in front of us. We can hear him pray. Pray that you might draw us into that same stream. Pray that we might follow after Jesus with all our hearts uh, like he did. Lord, that we might see the implications of all of that for praying for ourselves and for our neighbours and follow those too. God, shape us that we might be the people that you want us to be as a result of hearing your words to us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So, for those of you who've been with us on this journey that we're on through Ephesians, um, you'll know roughly where we are in the structure of this book. If we get our diagram up on the screen here, you'll remember Ephesians is a book with six chapters. We've um, just now come to the point where we're completing the first three, and they're a unit altogether, as you'll see as we go on. And um, the way that those first three chapters look is like this. Um, So if you just refresh that, Rick. Look at that. Perfect. Um, The first three chapters, even though we've divided them into three pieces, they really divide into two in Paul's mind. Two big blocks of text that end with a prayer. Okay, um, so the passage that we have in front of us today is the second of those two prayers. And um, just like the first prayer back in chapter one, this second prayer is very practical. You'll remember how Paul's thinking works. Uh, In each one of these blocks of text, Paul starts off with what we called vertical content, truth about us and God, God and us, Uh, truth about the amazing blessings that he's given us, Uh, truth about the amazing grace that God has showered on us. But do you remember, Paul isn't content just to leave it at that, is he? Paul is determined to bring all of that lofty, shiny, vertical doctrine down into the grubby reality of our horizontal relationships with each other. It's all about practical application. Paul wants to see these Ephesians uh, have their relationships with each other transformed. He wants to see the way that they look at each other changed. He wants to see that the way they treat each other changed. And so we saw that in the overview as well, didn't we? If we add in the, the final layer here, this is how it looks in Paul's mind. So it goes from vertical, all about me and God, God and me, into the horizontal, how should my life be changed 
and then into prayer. And then he repeats the same cycle, vertical, horizontal, prayer. Okay, now as we get farther into the book, I think that we're going to be able to see really clearly why he does that. Because you might be thinking, hey, that's kind of a nice pattern. It's colourful, but why does he bother? Well, the fact uh, of kind of why really jumped out for me last week while I was teaching over at the east side. Um, just chatting with Kurt Dillinger after the service. Kurt and I were just having a, a chat over by the, the coffee table. And Kurt says to me, look, I, I see this. Like, I see how Paul is kind of giving us all this vertical content, how he wants us to understand the amazing riches of what God has done for us. Um, and I also see the, the horizontal application, you know, how it is that he wants me now to live with my neighbours. But the problem is it's so difficult to do it. That application is really, really challenging for me to be reconciled with people who um, maybe I don't want to be reconciled with or um, who don't want to be reconciled to me. And that's the point, isn't it? You know, if the application that Paul was calling for here was easy, maybe he wouldn't even bother praying. You know, maybe it would just go vertical, horizontal, vertical, horizontal, job done. But it doesn't look like that, does it? In the text of Ephesians, it goes vertical, horizontal, prayer. The application that Paul's looking for, where reconciliation with God leads to reconciliation with our spouses, uh, with estranged friends and family members, where we turn around and lay our interests down at other people's feet, that's beyond us. We can't do it. And so in the first prayer and now in the second, Paul prays for supernatural power. So we need to not be under any deception here. The uh, passage that we have in front of us here this morning is asking for something that none of us possess and that can only come from God. And if we're not in the mood for that, we can kind of close our Bibles right here. So Paul prays that out of God's glorious riches, he would strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner being. He knows that we need help to really live out these truths that we're learning here in Ephesians. And if we know that too, we can pray that too. I guess many of us are feeling kind of challenged by what we're reading as we go through this book. You know, for me, I just feel this really profoundly, you know, that challenge of seeing, you know, Paul has this confidence that the gospel is going to actually come in and change and make straight things that are all kind of crumpled up and tangled up and, uh, you know, wade into the complicated situations of our lives and and make them right uh, or help us figure out the way to act rightly in them. Um, There are one or two very specific situations for me where I'm longing that God is going to do that. But the structure of the book tells me, doesn't it, what to do with that longing. It tells me to pray. In fact, it does more than even that. It shows me how to pray as well, doesn't it? Because Paul's prayers are recorded here in the text to show me uh, the way that he approached uh, this challenge of praying the gospel into his own practical experience. Just as we found in the first prayer in chapter 1, this second prayer has that same kind of teach-by-lead quality to it. So here we can walk in Paul's footsteps or maybe better pray in his prayer steps and that's the way that we're going to approach it. So let's break it open now and see how Paul takes the needs of the Ephesians before God, not just so that they can be encouraged but so that they can be equipped to do the same thing themselves. So let's start with verse 14 if you can see that there in your Bibles. First of all, Paul comes into God's presence really exactly the way that Jesus himself taught us. Banking on the amazing truth that he laid out in chapter 1, that we are adopted children, Paul addresses God as father. And he camps there for a little while. Because being able to call God father, if you think about it, is one of the most amazing things that we will ever do. Paul doesn't just run straight past it. You know, this is what I tend to do. I say, oh, Father God, here are all my needs. Need one, need two, need three, and three B. We see, you know, that's the way that I pray. But no, Paul doesn't have that attitude. He takes this truth that God is Father and he kind of turns it round in his hands for a while and kind of takes the trouble to look at it from all the different sides and see what it really means for him. And when he does that, he makes some interesting discoveries. Paul says, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Well, what does that mean? Well, Paul wrote this in Greek. And he seems to have been struck by the fact that the Greek word for family, patria, uh, is derived from the Greek word for father, pater. But I think he saw something more profound in it than just that connection between those Greek words. 
Paul realized actually that uh, every family is connected to the father because family is the father's idea. The fact that families exist at all is the father's initiative, whether it's families on earth, like these Jewish and Gentile families in Ephesus that God had brought back together so amazingly by the power of the cross, or whether it's families in heaven, like the, uh, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms that Mike was teaching us about last week. All of it, whatever it is, comes from God. And so do you see with just one word out of his mouth, Paul is striking this note of radical dependence on God. And in Paul's mind, that was worth calling out because it was just so liberating and life-giving and so completely different to all of the alternative worldviews that were swirling around these Ephesians uh, in this place that Paul is writing to. And that's still true today. You know, the Buddhist worldview that we started with has no category for this kind of dependence. And the secular worldview is just the same. It all begins with me. I think, therefore I am. That's the kind of foundational mantra of our whole Enlightenment worldview, isn't it? Everything I admit to exist derives its value and its legitimacy from yours truly. And so my life becomes an exercise in fulfilling my potential and reaching my dreams and searching through my past to overcome my pain as if I am the centre of everything. But the problem with that whole approach is that it's toxic and desperately fragile. We are not able to bear the weight of foreseeing every twist in the road and controlling every circumstances. Every circumstance. If we get sick, or if we lose our job, or if our marriage falls into the tank, self-dependence can become very depressing very quickly. But that's not our fate as Christians. Just one look up at the father tells Paul he's a child. He's derived. He's been rescued from having to believe that he is the centre and that means that he has somewhere to run, to run for help. And that brings us into the, the prayer proper here in verse 16. Starting uh, there, it, as I read through it, you might have thought, okay, well, this seems a little bit complicated. Actually, it's, it's not too bad. It breaks up into four pieces. And they're put together on a kind of additive basis, rather like you might move through a set of Lego instructions. So actually, for um, your delight and enjoyment, we have here a special Ephesian set of Lego instructions. This is what Paul is trying to build. Um, and you're going to see as we march through, I've just labeled each one of them. The idea is that the number four is the goal, isn't it? This is what we're trying to build here. I wish I actually had the real model so that you could all work on it as we go along. That'd be too noisy. That's where we're trying to get to, but the sequence is important. So the first one we're just going to dive in with is here. Paul prays in verse 16 for power. Now, we've already thought a little bit about this power piece, haven't we? Because we're reading right through Ephesians. We know why Paul prays for power here. In the first three chapters of the book, he's done the non-trivial exercise of unloading the entire gospel on these people. And uh, he's challenged them to live the whole thing out. Okay, there's a lifetime's work right there. Uh, He wants them to live out that vertical in their horizontal. And he knows that they need power to do it. And so do we. We can't do that stuff on our own. We need God to help us put everything that he's taught us into practice. But even if we saw that coming, it's striking, isn't it, how Paul asks for power here. He asks, if you see there in verse 16, that God would strengthen us with power out of his glorious riches. Now that's not the first time that that little phrase has appeared in this letter. Paul did that in the first prayer too. Back there, in chapter 1, he prayed that the Ephesians would know the glorious riches of God's inheritance. And do you remember what the inheritance is, or more accurately, who the inheritance is? The inheritance that God is looking forward to enjoying in the future is us. So that helps us understand what Paul means when he uses this phrase, God's glorious riches, here in this prayer, doesn't it? This is what glorious riches look like in God's eyes. It's very counterintuitive to us because to us, glorious riches looks like something newly minted. You know, so it's natural to us as if we're buying a new phone and we have the option between the new and the refurbished. You think, oh, I like definitely going for the new. That's not God's heart at all. God is all about refurbished. And so you see, God sees glorious riches. When God sees glorious riches, Uh, What that means in his eyes is seeing the broken, the disappointing and the fallen, people like us, made whole again and brought near by the blood of Jesus. 
And that's the vision of God that Paul wants us to have in mind when we come asking him for power to live the Christian life. Maybe it seems unlikely to us that God is even going to hear our prayer for power to live. Maybe because we feel like we've just prayed that so many times or we just feel that we've let him down so many times when he has helped us. But if we're praying like Paul prays, asking God to bless us out of his glorious riches, well, we're praying with the fact that God is willing to help people who don't deserve it right in front of our eyes. That's what Paul wants us to do. He wants us to fix our eyes on, the, on God's glorious riches as a reminder of what God is capable of. If God can create an inheritance for himself out of people like us, well, how will he not then also give us what's needed to build that inheritance up into what he wants it to be if we ask him? And it's an amazing privilege for us to know that. This isn't something that the world can offer. And we saw that when we thought about the fatherhood of God just now, didn't we? As Christians, we have the blessing of knowing that we are dependent. All the world can offer us is the curse of knowing that we're independent. That really came to a point of focus for me in my own life um, when I was sick in my 20s and early 30s. Um, And I ended up not able to work and living with my non-Christian parents out in the countryside in in the southwest of England. And I remember very clearly um, how I used to try to tell my folks that um, uh, God was working in my life to help me because it seemed so apparent to me. Uh, But they would actually correct me. And they would say, no, no, Neil, um, no, it's you who's doing this. You know, you're the one who's doing all the enduring here. No, it's not God. Why? Well, because in the non-Christian world, it's a badge of honour to be self-sufficient. You know, it's all, I am a rock. I am an island. I can do this on my own. Thank you very much. But the reality, as things went on, was that that self-dependence wasn't sustainable. It's difficult to watch. My parents found it harder and harder to cope with the fact that my illness was not coming to a point of resolution. But bless God, that wasn't my experience. Honestly, I think the hardest parts were just those first few months. Because once I got a few miles under my belt with it, I realised that dependence on God really worked. He really does have glorious riches that we can draw on. I needed power from outside myself to keep going every day. And I found it in Christ. Now, all of us are going to face that kind of test someday. Some of us will face it early in life. Some of us won't face it until much later. But we must, each of us, come to a point in the end uh, when that is our experience, because each of us will die. And that's the ultimate statistic, isn't it? One out of every one people in this room (laughs) will die one day. It's true. And when that day comes, each one of us will need power that comes from outside ourselves if we're not going to collapse in panic. That's what psychologists who study death and dying tell us. They say you don't want to be the person who reaches their deathbed with nothing greater to call on than themselves. But statistically, that's not pretty. But that doesn't have to be us if we're Christians. So let's move on to the second step here of our little... um, Lego house of prayer here. (laughs) Which we find in verse 17. Paul tells these Ephesians now that uh, they're rooted and established in love and he prays that Christ will come and dwell in their hearts by faith. Now what is it that Paul has got in mind here? It seems a bit puzzling. The first thing that really jumped off the page for me uh, is just the encouragement that Paul offers here to Christians who come from difficult backgrounds. There certainly must have been plenty of them in Ephesus. You know, people who had grown up in pagan families, people who had just sold out their younger years to worshipping Artemis and all the garbage that went along with that. Many of these people had lives that were founded on toxic soil. And uh, when we're in that situation, it's really easy to think then, isn't it, that that toxicity is going to spread its way up into our future. Perhaps maybe we come from backgrounds where we have something similar. Maybe in your background, God was just words with no substance at all. Just a set of things to say that you believe that have no impact whatsoever on your actions. And you're sitting on that piece of toxicity. Perhaps you come from a background where God was actively rejected like me. Perhaps you come from a background that was totally messed up by divorce or abuse or alcoholism. 
So easy to let ourselves be defined by that stuff, isn't it? So easy to say, because that's where I come from, that's what I am, and that's what I will be. But you see, Paul won't have any of that. Certainly difficult backgrounds can leave damage behind that we need to work and pray our way through with help. But here's Paul's verdict on us right now. If we know Christ, even before we start working through that stuff, we are rooted and established in love. In the most perfect love possible, actually. If we're Christians, we've been radically repotted. Our roots don't go down into all that toxicity anymore. There's no sense of inevitability to it anymore. Our roots go straight down into the kind, compassionate, reliable, self-sacrificial love of Jesus. Remember also that this prayer that Paul is praying here is cumulative, isn't it? It's a Lego model. The second step is founded on the first. You can't build those second set of bricks without having the first set in there. That's why verse 17, the second step in the prayer, begins with the word, so that. He prayed the first part of the prayer, so that we can enjoy the blessings of the second. So why is it that Paul prayed for power? Well, he prayed for power so that Christ might dwell in our hearts through faith. But what does he mean by that? Why is Paul telling this bunch of Ephesians who are already Christians that they need to have Christ dwell in their hearts by faith? Isn't that a little bit odd? Is this some kind of extra level of initiation that we need that's going to bring us closer to the throne? And what does it actually mean to have Christ dwell in our hearts? You know, isn't that strictly the Holy Spirit's job? Isn't Jesus now actually in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf? But I don't think Paul wants us to get too het up with those questions. Uh, No, it isn't an extra level of initiation in the Christian life because there are no extra levels of initiation in the Christian life, period. The day we put our faith in Christ, we are clothed in his righteousness. We will never be any more or any less acceptable before God than we are at that moment. And Paul isn't saying that Jesus dwells in our hearts uh, in literally the same way that the Holy Spirit does, kind of, you know, physically present here. No, he's simply describing the experience of growing in maturity as a believer when we sense Christ becoming steadily more at home in us. I guess many of us can relate to that. Uh, The idea that Jesus is just becoming more and more the centre of our lives. Perhaps it's a bit like a human marriage, you know, um, uh, where our partner just becomes steadily kind of more woven into us um, so that uh, they feel kind of present even when they're absent. There's that sense of warmth and fit and longing towards that other person, isn't there? A sense of incompleteness when that person isn't there. Is that how we feel towards Jesus? That's what it looks like to have Jesus really dwelling in our hearts. And that's what Paul is praying for power that we will know. And once again, it's striking, isn't it? Um, the means by which God's power to make this increasing sense of uh, closeness to Jesus is going to come about. Paul tells us that it's by faith. And we know a lot about that phrase now, don't we? Because we're all good students of Ephesians 2. By faith, according to Ephesians 2, means that this gift of closeness to Jesus that maybe our heart's just kind of really yearning towards, that's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And that just shows us once again, I think, how far real Christianity is away from the secular alternatives. Because the secular world is all about boasting. You know, it's all done in the most pleasant way, isn't it? But the bottom line is it's about getting bigger and better and achieving more and more. Why is that? Well, because that just gives us the proof we need that we have what it takes, that we can work our way to a position of significance in the world. And it's not just secularism that has that. That idea that we can work our way towards some kind of enlightenment, whatever that means for us. Buddhism has it. Hinduism has it. Judaism has it. Confucianism has it. Islam has it. In fact, Christianity stands alone as the only major worldview that admits that we don't have it. That's actually where Christianity starts. Christianity is by faith and not by works. And that isn't some baseless leap into the unknown, believing against reason. Quite the opposite. Faith in the Bible is very reasonable. Faith in the Bible is a determination to place our confidence in someone who's proved themselves to be uh, 
are more deserving of our trust than we are ourselves. But it is an admission of weakness. And we need to be ready for that. It's an admission of need. Faith is an admission of the fact that Christ won't just come and dwell in my heart because I want to make him do it. Christ will come and dwell in my heart if and only if I surrender my life to him and I let him come on his own terms. All right. So now we're reaching the the third step in the prayer. So let's put this next little layer on here. Taking a big jump here towards the finish line. And we can start to see, can't we, somewhat where Paul is shooting for now. Paul wants to see Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith so that we might have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. What an amazing passage of the Bible. I guess most of us have known that one for a long time. And the logic of it maybe makes some greater sense to us now. You know, if we haven't really made a place for Jesus in our hearts, if we haven't grown to love him or appreciate him, if we haven't got a taste for the kind of stuff that he does or for the kind of way that he does it, the story of Jesus's love for us is going to fall on deaf ears, isn't it? But if we have developed a taste for it, if Jesus has come to dwell in our hearts, then we won't be content just to hear the overture of Jesus's love for us, will we? We'll want to hear the whole symphony Bring it on. Like if we've got that taste for Jesus, don't you just want more of it? And that's exactly where Paul is going here. He wants these Ephesians to come to know the full dimensions of the love of Christ, the width, the length, the height, and the depth. He wants them to explore it. And the way that he frames that request here uh, gives us a bit of a clue as to how he thinks that we can achieve that. Because we might be sitting there thinking, yeah, that sounds great, but how do I? Well, now watch Paul's little how-to how guide. He uses four words, width, length, height, and depth. And these are special words in the Bible because they're associated with a very special Old Testament prophecy. In four uh, chapters, the four chapters that run from Ezekiel 40 through to Ezekiel 43, these four words are used a total of 47 times. Why? Well, that's the passage in Ezekiel where uh, a vision is recorded of the new temple that God plans to build. In a dream, Ezekiel meets a man who we can only assume is Jesus, um, who takes Ezekiel on a tour around this new temple with a measuring line in his hand, kind of like the, the, uh, whatever it would have been, the um, uh, 6th century BC equivalent of a Stanley Powerlock out there. He's kind of measuring the whole thing off. The width, the length, the height, the depth, every part of the building. The temple in Ezekiel's vision turns out to be much like Solomon's temple, Uh, although it's laid out on a far grander scale. And there are some other important differences too. As Ezekiel moves closer and closer to the Holy of Holies, which is the special place where God dwells, he finds that the walls are getting thicker and thicker, kind of symbolizing increasing solidity and stability as we head right towards the, the business part of this temple. This place is built to last. And as he goes along, he also finds that the, uh, the, uh, going from courtyard to courtyard, the doorways get narrower and narrower. Uh, showing us that this is a restricted place uh, and that the way into it is very specific. When he reaches the Holy of Holies itself, he gets another surprise because in Solomon's temple, do you remember the Holy of Holies was walled off from the floor to the ceiling with his great thick cedar boards and golden chains. But in Ezekiel's vision, the Holy of Holies has a pair of vast doors that fold back flat against the walls so you can just walk straight in. But the climax comes when amid all of this measuring, Ezekiel looks up and he sees the glory of the Lord entering the temple and filling the Holy of Holies. And a voice says to him, son of man, this is the place for my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. So isn't it just an amazing, breathtaking way for Paul to describe Jesus's love for us, to liken it to that temple When Paul thought of Jesus' love, that's the place that his mind turned to. A place where sacrifice was made for sin. A place where innocence was restored. A place where people found acceptance and forgiveness. A place where God was through and through it. When he thought of Jesus' love, Paul saw the place where God would live among his people forever. And as he reviewed Jesus' love, and as it were, kind of took himself on the walking tour of it, measuring off... uh, the, uh, the width, the length, the height, and the depth. 
thinking about the stability and the solidity of it, recognizing that the fact that the way into it was a narrow way, but that through it we have uninhibited access now to the presence of God. I think Paul was just struck, just like Ezekiel was struck, by the, the indescribable wonder of it all. And you can see that he, he feels he needs to add another uh, word to that list of four, the classic list of four from Ezekiel uh, in verse 19 to try and catch that idea. He says he longs not only that the Ephesians would grasp the width and the length and the height and the depth, but that they might know the surpassingness of Jesus's love. He wants them to see that the whole idea that God would come and offer himself in our place and open wide the doors into his presence is just off the charts insane. It's beyond us. It's unattainable by us. We can't comprehend that. Why on earth would God do it? And how? And again, that brings Christianity into sharp contrast with the other religions and worldviews that are out there, doesn't it? Christianity tells us that at the heart of everything, there's a God who we cannot work out on our own. However enlightened or insightful we become, whatever degrees we get, whatever path of renunciation or meditation we follow, not even if we're Buddha himself, it's all useless. The opinions we develop about God will never hit the mark because God is beyond us. If we're to know the meaning of life, the Bible tells us that the initiative must come from God's side. God himself must speak. And that's just the most wonderful, liberating truth. First of all, I think, because it corresponds with what our hearts really tell us, doesn't it? Isn't there something scary about any philosophy that can honestly look up at the night sky and say, oh yeah, you know, I think I've got that covered. You know, there's nothing out there that I can't work out through my own rationality. But it also just blows up the whole elitism that dominates these alternative worldviews. You know, secular materialism, it's not going to kind of say this on a big label, but here's the truth. It's really only for the few who have the money or the luck to succeed with it. It's probably not us. Buddhism is the same. It's only really for the few who have the power or hard enough hearts to leave every human attachment behind and lose themselves in meditation. Yikes. But who is the surpassing knowledge of the gospel for? Paul tells us flat out in verse 18. Look at this. It's one of the most amazing jewels in this passage. It's for all the Lord's holy people. And any one of us can be one of those. In the Bible, knowledge of the unknowable is made available to every man, woman, and child, from the least to the greatest, from the youngest to the oldest, from the richest to the poorest, from the most learned to the most unlearned. And that, I mean, that's amazing. That's such a gift. I just think of our own little kids and just think they can know him and have his heart in their hearts, even though they're just like three. Isn't God so good that it's not just for some you know, advanced degree, or if you have to go off kind of chasing through the mountains, looking for some enlightenment that you'll never reach. That's not the gospel. And that gives us everything that we need to get to this uh, final stage in our assembly here of this um, Lego journey through Paul's prayer. Paul kind of tops out the house now. He shows us where it is that he's really been trying to go all along. And now it all becomes clear, doesn't it? Now I see why we put those pieces in the way that we did. What is it that Paul wants for these Ephesians more than anything else? What's the destination towards which he's been traveling? He wants them to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And that makes a ton of sense now, doesn't it? If we've been watching this temple imagery unfold in the previous part of the prayer. Because after Ezekiel walked around the temple measuring off the width, the length, the height and the depth of it all, what happened? The presence of God himself came and filled the building. And that's what Paul is now praying for us. And this is huge if we understand where this idea of God's presence filling the temple fits into the overall Bible story. It's the primary Old Testament picture of the fact that God has restored the relationship between us and him that we were made for. When Solomon built the first temple, the glory of God, the pillar of cloud and fire that led them out of Egypt, descended and filled the Holy of Holies. The priests couldn't even get into the building to fulfill their responsibilities. It was a sign for God's people that God himself had come to live amongst them again, just like the Garden of Eden, right in their midst. It's one of the most important moments in the whole Bible story, in the whole history of Israel. But you know what Jesus does with it? Jesus tells us 
It was just a picture, just a grainy approximation, just a a low-budget illustration of what God is doing for real in him and what God is going to do through him in his church. God's intention is that we should now be temples. Do you remember that at the end of Ephesians 2? God is taking shabby, disappointing lives, proud, judgmental, self-sufficient lives, radically transforming them and then building them into a temple with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. And what does he want to do with that temple? Exactly what he did with Solomon's temple. Exactly what he did with Jesus, to whom that temple was always pointing. He wants to fill us so full of himself that nothing else can even get in through the doors. And now maybe we're able to see why this is the target that Paul has been aiming for all along. Think about where this prayer falls in the book of Ephesians as a whole. Paul goes from the vertical to the horizontal to prayer, doesn't he? From the vertical to the horizontal to prayer. So this prayer is related to the horizontal that goes before it. We can see that in the very first words of our section in verse 14. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. For what reason? Or for the reason that in chapter 2, he's just laid out this super challenging call to these Jewish Christians and these gentle Christians in Ephesus to lay down their differences and be a family. So isn't it striking that he then goes on and prays that they might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God as the way to address that need? Because that's exactly what Rod taught us the other week about unity from John 17, isn't it? Experiencing the fullness of God is the way that we get united with each other. God wants us to know the fullness of who he is, the whole Trinitarian dance of Father, Son and Spirit laying down their interests at each other's feet so that we can be one as they are one. That's the power that's going to transform the life of the Ephesian church, and that's the power that's going to transform the life of our church too. Not some new superhuman effort to get along, but a deeper experience of the unity of God himself. And that's why all three members of the Trinity are kind of concealed in this prayer. I wonder whether you saw them as we went along. Paul kneels before the Father, asking that out of his glorious riches he would strengthen these Ephesians by his spirit so that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. The spirit serves the father. The father gives up the son. The son himself gives his own life up to serve the church. And if we're brought fully into that dance of selfless joy, if the temple of our lives is filled up with that so it drives all other things out, We won't be able to stop ourselves living in unity, will we? If we have that image of God really blazing its way out inside us, we won't be able to help ourselves laying down our rights and our grudges at the feet of our neighbours. Because that's exactly what God's character looks like when it's impressed on the human heart. So is Christianity like Buddhism? Is it all about individualistic enlightenment? Is it all about renouncing our attachments to other people because they cause us so much pain? Or is it like secularism? Is it all about forming cliques with people who are like us and fighting our way to the top? No. Christianity is about laying down our interests at the feet of other people because that's what God does. And the more he fills us, the more that we'll be equipped to do it. So that's Paul's prayer. Uh, That captures his longing for the Ephesians as we uh, arrive at the end of this first half of the book. But it does have a postscript. Actually, it's quite a famous postscript where Paul calls out in praise now to the God that he's been asking to fill his friends in Ephesus. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I guess most of us know those verses, don't we? Maybe we've called on them, claimed them for ourselves in our own lives from time to time. It's wonderful to know that God can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. It's just part of who God is, isn't it? You know, he's beyond us. He made everything that exists and he sustains it all moment by moment. Of course he can do more than we ask or imagine because he's doing it all the time. The reason why we're alive at the moment is because he's doing more than we can ask or imagine. But now we see it along with the prayer. I think we can see that there's maybe a little bit more to it than that. The surpassingness of verse 19, do you see that? And the immeasurableness of verse 20 are connected. 
Both of those words bring, begin with the Greek prefix huper, which means above or over. It's the root from which we get our English word super. So it's uh, rather like Paul is saying, uh, I pray that God would enable you to know the super incomprehensible love of Christ. And I thank God that he's able to do super abundantly more than what I'm asking. So you can see that those two things are linked together in his mind. That's how it reads on the page. So do you see now that verse 20 isn't intended to be read in isolation? Yes, it's true that we can claim that verse when we need God to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine in our work life or in our family life. But that's not the primary reason why it's here. Verse 20 is here to deal with the implicit problem in verse 19. Because if the knowledge of God is surpassingly wonderful, how will we ever know it? How will we ever reach this point of being filled to the measure of all the fullness of God that Paul thinks is so crucial for living the Christian life? Well, here's the answer. The knowledge of God that we need really does surpass our capabilities, but so do the resources of God to help us grasp it. We don't have to force the divine into our lives by merely human power, like all the religions of the world are trying to and trying to get us to do. No, in the gospel, the immovable object, our inability to grasp God, meets the irresistible force, God's ability to grasp God. God provides all that we need to help us know him and love him and live the way that he lives. And that's just what Paul is praying for here. Paul doesn't want us to uh, just see the immeasurable power of God as a way to shore up our earthly priorities. Paul wants us to be transformed so that we have a longing for heavenly priorities. Paul wants us to be calling on God's power and strength that we might be like him. Paul's prayer was not so much that God would do immeasurably more in the uh, uh, situation that the Ephesians themselves face with persecution and goodness knows what else. You know, we know from our study in Acts what a difficult uh, time that church was having. But Paul doesn't mention any of that in prayer, does he? Paul's prayer was that God would do immeasurably more than all they could ask or imagine in lighting a fire of love for Christ in them. That's the thing that he thought was really important. We started out today thinking about Siddhartha Gautama, didn't we? And his personal quest for enlightenment. And it all sounded scarily like the modern secular worldview. It was individualistic, elitist. It told us that if we only work hard enough and make big enough sacrifices, we will work our way towards significance. But you know the most striking thing about Siddhartha Gautama's vision for a community of people who would follow in his footsteps? It's that it's failed. If you travel to China or Thailand or Tibet today and you see people worshipping statues of Buddha, you need to know that has nothing to do with what Siddhartha Gautama actually taught. He taught his followers to renounce dependence on other things, gods or people, and to go in quest of enlightenment on their own. But it doesn't work. People can't do it. The majority of modern Buddhists pray to Buddha in the hope that he will give them a portion of his own enlightenment because they've realized that they can't get there on their own. So they've developed this elaborate mechanism of calling out for grace, even though there's no basis behind it at all. Buddha didn't claim to be God. He didn't give anybody any hope that he could answer their prayers. But that's the level of desperation that self-dependence will ultimately drive us to if that's the route in life we choose. That's where we would be if it wasn't for the gospel. But the gospel is the amazing good news that God is a father and that we are merely children. That he has glorious riches that the weak and the wretched can draw on freely. That we're lifted out of our toxic backgrounds by divine power and replanted in the rich soil of his love, and that every one of his people, from the least to the greatest, is included. The gospel is the wonderful truth that even though Christ's love for us is immeasurable, God has immeasurable resources to help us grasp it. And if we grasp it, Paul's prayer for us is answered. Jesus is supremely different from anything that the world can offer us in his place. If his power is at work in us, We will be changed. If we love him, God will make us like him. So let's pray.
for this reason, we bow our knees before you, Father, thanking you so much that children is so much better than we deserve to be called, but it's all that we are, that we don't have to be the source or the goal or the point of it all. Thank you for that amazing, liberating truth. God, thank you that you have glorious riches and that your vision of glorious riches is refurbishment, remaking what's broken and wrecked and old. And God, we gladly bring you our lives, broken and wrecked and old, longing that out of your power and no other power that they might be transformed for usefulness in your kingdom. God, we pray that you would work by your spirit in our inner beings because we long that Christ might dwell in our hearts by faith. Long to just have that sense of increasing closeness to him, that our roots are going down into the soil where his roots are, that we might love him more and more, that we might miss him when he's distant, that we might delight in him when he's near. God, we pray that you might grant us power together with all your holy people. Thank you that it's just so completely unexclusive that it's open to all. And we bless you that that's your way of reaching out to us and showing us the width, the length, the height and the breadth of your love. God, fill us like the temple in the Old Testament. God, would you come blazing into our hearts so there isn't room for all the other garbage that we bring. Help us to know, Lord God, that our lives are founded found in a place where there's forgiveness Lord where all our sin is washed away because of the blood of Christ and now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that immeasurably big ask that we're laying out there because we can't do this God we can't contain the fullness of you because of how small and weak we are but yet we know we don't have to fret that one because you are immeasurably more powerful than we can possibly imagine Lord, even our existence moment by moment teaches us that truth. So might the immeasurable power which is sustaining us in our seats right now, Lord, which got us up this morning, which granted us life, might that immeasurable power grant us the riches of spiritual life, that we might be like you, that we might live like you, that the fullness of your character might work its way out in us, that we might be reconciled to our neighbours, that we might be laying our lives down at the feet of our spouses and our friends for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. How deep the Father's love for